In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amin. Happy New Year. Today also is, of course, the fourth and final Sunday of the blessed month of Kiak. Next week, God willing, is the feast. As we saw in this journey of this holy blessed month, the readings from the first chapter of the Gospel of St. Luke. Um, we finished this morning that first chapter, um, which covers, of course, the Annunciation of St. John the Baptist, the Annunciation of Christ our Lord, the visitation of the Mother of God to St. Elizabeth, and then this morning, the birth of St. John the Baptist and the praise of his father, Zacharias, who was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we come um, now approaching the feast of Nativity, the birth of our Lord, God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom is due all glory. And we remember the great providence of God who has arranged from all of the, from the beginning of the history of the world to bring us to this moment of salvation, which we will see, of course, the beginning of a process which will lead, of course, to the cross and to the resurrection and the ascension and the gift of the Holy Spirit upon the church. So I want uh, to reflect a little bit this morning about um, the place that St. John the Baptist plays in revealing to us how the providence of God works not only in human history but in our lives as well. Um, I want to read from a passage that's very um, telling about the person of St. John the Baptist, which is not from the reading this morning in Luke about his birth, but something that takes place later after he's imprisoned. We know, of course, that St. John bore witness to Christ in the wilderness, baptizing a baptism of repentance, calling all to prepare the way of the Lord. And we know that he also was fiery in his spirit and uh, did not hide from telling the truth. And, uh, and this got him into prison and ultimately um, brought, upon, brought upon him his own martyrdom. But just before he was martyred, before his head was cut off by Herod, um, we have this, uh, this event that takes place in the Gospel of St. Matthew. It's in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of St. Matthew. Let me read the whole passage to you, and then we will reflect a little bit on it. Now, the, the context, again, is St. John the Baptist is now in prison, and the Gospel tells us that when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? So St. John from prison sends two of his disciples to Christ with the question, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you see and which you hear. The blind see, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John. So now the, the two apostles left. And as they were leaving, Christ turns to the crowd and says about John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, 
the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. And he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this is a very sort of telling passage about John the Baptist. Now remember last week, we remembered, we recall the visitation. St. Mary with the child Christ in her womb visits St. Elizabeth with the child John in her womb. And the child leaps in his mother's womb at the, at the visitation of the mother of God in the presence of Christ. John, from his birth, knew who Christ was. He knew why he was born into the world. I'm sure John, when he was being raised as a child, that he was constantly preparing himself for his great mission, to prepare the way of Christ. And yet, in this moment, when he's in prison, he asks his disciples to question the Lord with the question, are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? It's really a sort of intriguing um, event in the life of St. John. Was he doubting? Some commentators say that he was sort of rhetorically asking the question so that his disciples would hear the answer from Christ, yes, I am the coming one. And the disciples then would would let go of their attachment to St. John and go and follow Christ and that St. John knew that this was the way to sort of detach his disciples from him, that he was going to be martyred, and now all the attention should be focused on Christ. This is certainly um, in line with the character of St. John the Baptist. But at the same time, Christ answers, go and tell John what you see and what you hear, as if Christ is actually responding to a question that John really wants answered for himself. And I think there's no no shame, there's no harm in us admitting this interpretation, that St. John the Baptist, who even though he was born for this purpose and was raised with the knowledge of this purpose of being the forerunner and the preparer of the way of the Lord, that he, being in prison, started to ask, does this really make sense? Is this really how things are going to unfold? Is this all there is to the coming of the Great One, that I'm now thrown in prison, I'm about to be killed, and people are, some are believing in you, others are targeting you and trying to accuse you of blasphemy and, and breaking the laws of Moses. Is this really what it's going to unfold like? And I think that this really is a reflection of our own lives. Each one of us sometimes, we look, at, we look up to the sky and we say, Lord, is this really your will? Is this really how things are going to go? Is this really all there is? Is this really your will? And, and sometimes we might even begin to doubt because it doesn't look so neatly prepared. It doesn't look so divine. It doesn't look so sort of packaged in a way that has the the, the clear stamp of God on it, that we ask ourselves, is this this it? Is this right? And Christ's reply to John is also the reply in some sense to each of us, remind John of all of that I have done. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, 
the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. Remind yourself of all that I am in the world and in your life in times bygone. Remind yourself, not based on the vision of the limited vision that you see now in your tribulation and in your trial and in the darkness that's covering you, but look at the big picture. Stand outside of yourself and look at the big picture and you will see that I am the Lord God, the Pantocrator, whose providence is perfect and everything is as it should be. And Jesus responds by saying, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. In other words, blessed is the one who is not offended by my ways. Blessed is the one who believes in me even when he's thrown in prison and is about to be killed for my sake. Blessed is the one who is not offended by my providence, by my will in his life, when things don't go as one supposes they should go. What a, an invitation Christ offers us to not be offended by him, that he would not be a stumbling block in our life. Think about that. God is begging us not to see him as a stumbling block in, our, in the goodness of our life. And then Jesus, of course, begins to praise John the Baptist. And again, this is very telling because the one who is incapacitated in prison, the one who is, in a sense, impotent now in his ability to even speak, and do anything, the one who seems like he has been won over by his enemies, Christ says he's the greatest among women, born of women, because he's doing the will of God. And Christ, in a sense, says to each one of us, you also are the greatest if you do the will of God. That's why even in, in that time in the gospel when when the mother of God and, and his relatives were coming and they said, look, your mother and your brethren are outside. And he said, who are my mother and my brethren? He who does the will of God is my mother and my brother and my, and my sister and, my, and so on. So in a sense, the Lord here is praising John the Baptist because he, he's saying, don't take offense at the unfolding of my plan and your place in it. Even if now it seems like you're being dispensed with, even if it now it seems like your role in the whole picture of salvation seems so minuscule, seems so unimportant anymore. I'm sure all of us, sometimes we feel like our life really is so unimportant. It doesn't, doesn't really make a difference in the bigger scheme of things. How does God need me at all in this world? What part can I possibly play in God's plan? And the Lord is telling us through St. John the Baptist, don't be offended by my ways, but you are the greatest if you, do, if you allow my providence to unfold in your life and you do my will. And so he then says something very important to all of us. He says, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is even greater than John the Baptist. And in a sense, we could say that um, John the Baptist is the greatest among the prophets because all the prophets from a distance spoke about the coming of Christ, anticipated the coming of Christ, but St. John the Baptist pointed him out in the flesh, was the one who, who prepared the way for him. In that sense, he is greater in his scope than all of the other prophets. But, but then the Lord says that whoever is of the kingdom of God is even greater than all of the Old Testament prophets. Because we know that when Christ comes, 
and when he dies and, and rises again, that he's going to grant us sonship, daughtership, adoption, childhood, as we read in the uh, Catholic epistle today. That the great love of God has been shown, St. John says in the Catholic epistle today, and that we have been granted to become children of God. A supernatural birth. Not just, not just creatures that are God's children in a, in a general sense, like all of his creation is, is part of his, his, his goodness and his love. But in a unique sense now, each one of us who is born of water and the Spirit becomes adopted into the family of God in a unique way which surpasses all of the righteousness of the Old Testament. And so Christ is saying, if you heard what I said about St. John the Baptist and how great he was, well, you, by you believing in me, by you coming to be in communion with me, and by you participating in my death and in my resurrection, you become infinitely greater in the kingdom of heaven than even St. John the Baptist, who still, in a sense, brings to end the Old Testament. And we see that the, the providence of God as it unfolds in our lives depends so much on this humility that St. John the Baptist has. St. John the Baptist, like his humility shown in the passage that we read in Matthew 11, imagine if the response came back I'm not the one. There's still one who's going to come after me. But St. John the Baptist is so humble that he's saying, even if it's not you, just let me know and we'll continue to wait. We'll continue to prepare. We'll continue to, to do our part. There's a, there's a great humility in St. John the Baptist in which he says, even if, even if it's not as I hope it to be, even if it's not as I want it to be, I'm still, I'm still part of the team. I'm still in. I'm still your servant, Lord, to do, to do my part, even if it means having my head cut off. And, and this is the humility that, that the saints teach us in their life, again, by, by looking up to heaven and saying, Lord, if this, is, if this is what you will for me, then glory be to you. So be it, Lord. You are the good one and lover of mankind. If this is the role that you have given me, if this is the part that you have given me, if this is the cross that you have given me, I accept it, Lord, because I'm part of the, the great plan of God, the unfolding of God's plan. And this was, again, characteristic of John from the beginning as we read in the Gospel of St. John in the third chapter when, when John says again in front of his disciples, he who has the bride is the bridegroom speaking about Christ. But the friend of the bridegroom, speaking of himself, stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must what? Decrease. The humility of John, who, who, who sees that the, the best thing that can happen is that God's plan be fulfilled, that God be glorified, even if it means that he must be diminished, 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 diminished. The ways of God, his divine providence. He says in Isaiah, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's such an important verse in Isaiah that sort of governs our life. Remember always, God's thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not his ways. And the distance between the way you and I think how things should go is as great as the distance between the, uh, the heavens and the earth. In other words, an infinite difference. That word providence um, is a, it comes from a Latin word providentia. It literally means to see ahead, to see ahead, to foresee the outcome and to act accordingly. So providence means that God never acts for a short-term gain, which often is how we view our actions and, and the world, but he always sees ahead as to what's best for the end of our, of our life, our eternity. God's providence always is working in a sense for him to, as one who foresees what is best for us in eternity, not the temporal short-term benefits of life on earth. And so God oftentimes will trade um, an earthly joy, an earthly benefit, an earthly gain if it means something greater for us in eternity. And this often comes at a great price to us, a great cost, in which, again, we might be offended by the plan of God, by his, by his providence. It's interesting that the word providence is also the same root word of providence is the same root word for the, for the word prudence, which sometimes we also can say synonymously is the word wisdom, prudence. Prudence is, is the human virtue which, um, which, says how, which, which informs us how to do the right thing at the right time and the right way and in the right measure. Prudence is the virtue by which we do the right thing at the right time and the right way and in the right measure. So prudence, again, has to see ahead to what our objective is, what our goal is, what the end is, and then make decisions so that we make the right decision of the right time, the right thing, the right measure, the right way. So in a sense, we could say that what providence is to God, that active attribute of God, his providence, that what corresponds to that in our life is the virtue of prudence. That is, that we are filled with divine wisdom to know God and his ways, and that way we act according to the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of this world, not the wisdom of of human um, thought. And so when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, when, we, when we're filled with the divine teachings of, uh, of the scriptures and the lives of the saints, when we partake in the sacraments and we purify ourselves of sin, we are enlightened to see as God sees and to act as God acts. So that we live a prudent life, a, a supernaturally prudent life, which corresponds with God's providence. There's like a beautiful marriage that takes place. When I lack divine prudence, the providence of God becomes backwards, illogical to me, becomes a terrible cross that I must bear. 
We see um, beautifully the Holy Family as we now celebrate Christmas and then we get into the flight of the Holy Family to Egypt and the killing of the innocents. We see this beautiful unfolding of prudence and wisdom in the Holy Family as the providence of God unfolds in their life. We have that um, event of the, uh, the flight to Egypt. St. Joseph, St. Mary, and the child Jesus fleeing Herod and living in Egypt. And as one, um, as one father said, he said, God's ways are so different from ours. He might have struck down Herod, but he did not. He might have given the Holy Family a longer warning than just a few minutes, but he did not. He might have hidden them in some more convenient place than all the way in Egypt. Perhaps even he could have hidden them in Nazareth but he did not. He might have relieved their anxiety, helped their necessity in a thousand ways, but he did not. He has preferred that his own should not be the most comfortable, the most prosperous, the most considered people in this world. But to these he has said, and is always saying to us, rejoice and be glad for your reward is exceedingly great in heaven. He has preferred that his own should not be the most comfortable, the most prosperous, and the most considered people in the world. But he says to them and he says to us, Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So we see that sometimes the logic is reversed. And interestingly, we read in the, uh, in the account of the flight to Egypt, right, that, the, that the, the providence of God is literally reversed in the order of importance as we might see it. Right, we, we hear, for example, in the, in the second chapter of St. Matthew, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. So we have three people. We have St. Joseph, we have St. Mary, and we have Christ. Who is the greatest among the three? Christ. Who is the, who's the next greatest among the three? St. Mary. And the least among them is Joseph. But the angel comes to who? To Joseph. Again, after the, the, the family went to Egypt, now when Herod was dead, again, this is the same chapter, verse 19, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are death. There's sort of this um, reverse order of obedience. Right? Christ has to obey Mary and Joseph. Mary has to obey Joseph. And Joseph has to obey the word of God or the angel of the Lord. It's not the way that we would think in the order of logic. But those are God's ways. God's ways are not our ways. And so, the point of this is that the offense that Jesus spoke about, or the scandal, you can use either word, that, that, he would not be, that we wouldn't be offended or scandalized by Christ or by the providence of God. This is, in a sense, the cross that we bear, the cross of faith. To believe, to believe even when our mind tells us we shouldn't believe. To trust and to love God even when our thoughts tell us that it's all meaningless. This is to not be scandalized by the providence of God, to not take offense at God's plan. This is the ultimate cross of faith. And as one spiritual father said, he says, you see a painter who mixes up his colors, 
who spills together black and white, green and blue, etc. But you know that he is an artist, so you have faith in his talent. Looking at the disorders of the world, you turn your eyes to God, who is infinite good in providence. Have faith that he will dominate that disorder. Have faith that he will dominate the disorder in the world and the disorder in your life. Turn to him so that he will take care of it without worrying yourself. So often great worry hides a lack of faith. Great worry hides a lack of faith. So in a sense then, Jesus praises John because he is not scandalized by God's plan. He's not offended. In other words, John anticipates the cross. John is already carrying his cross before the cross. John is already the great example of the cross-bearer before Christ himself ascends to the cross. There's a, a beautiful autobiography I wrote about an Italian nun. Her name is Mother Mary Magdalene. She lived at the, um, the early 20th century. She is uh, from a, a convent in Italy, and um, the context of, of this passage in her autobiography is a very beautiful passage I want to read, is that she was being sent by her order in Italy to go start uh, a house of formation, like a, an extension of their order, uh, in Mexico. Okay? So it's all the way from Italy to Mexico. And she prepared for years for this, uh, for this trip to, to, to establish this community in Mexico. In 1910, this was um, uh, in 1913, she had left her, her convent. In 1910, there was a, a revolution in Mexico. A lot of people don't know about this, but there was a revolution in Mexico in which the, um, the government uh, turned against the church and, uh, and killed many, many thousands and thousands of Christians and priests and bishops, and many of them had to escape Many of the clergy escaped. Even for those of you who remember the convent that we went to in Alhambra, the Carmelite convent in Alhambra, the, the mother who started that convent was one who escaped from Mexico during that time, during the persecution in the early 1900s, and came to California and established the, uh, the community that's now in Alhambra. So she, she comes to Mexico and... Um, for, for several years, she's living in hiding. She has to wear civilian clothes. And then eventually she has to be, in a sense, uh, smuggled out of the country where she's sent to Spain. Right? So everything that was planned was turned upside down. Like all of the planning and all of the prayer and all of the, 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 the discernment that God wanted her to go to Mexico completely turned upside down on her. So she writes in her autobiography the following sort of reflection on what it all means. So she, this is now she's writing after she escaped from Mexico and she went to Spain. So she went from Italy to Mexico and then escaped to Spain, which was not part of the plan. She said, in Spain, I marveled in the silence of my heart at what God did with us, his poor creatures, with whom it seemed he was playing and entertaining himself. But she, she's almost, you sense this... Um, the human way of looking at it. It seemed to us that God was sort of playing with us, like we were like toys in his hands for his own entertainment to put us through such suffering. I marveled in the silence of my heart as what God did with us, his poor creatures, with whom it seemed he was playing and entertaining himself. Naturally, this question came to our minds, Lord, what is this that you have done? 
If you wanted us in Spain, why did you have to take us halfway around the world? How much time we lost? Questions like these came from human reasoning, from human reasoning, or from one who is guided by the flesh and not by the spirit. Faith and love speak differently. They tell us that God is in no hurry in his work. He has all eternity at his disposition. They tell us, what tells us again? Faith and love tells us. They tell us that every work of God must have the stamp of contradiction, of humiliation, of difficulties, because he wills that his works arise from them. They tell us that in order to be instruments of his glory, we must be first tried and purified in the crucible of suffering, which makes the works of God even more secure. Besides, we know that God at times asks his creatures things that they alone cannot accomplish, so as to reward them for the desire they have to do them. But it is certain, for it is certain that divine goodness rewards the sincere desires of the heart as well as, well as the works themselves. My soul, be confident that he has accepted all that you desire to do and suffer for him in Mexico for his glory, and that one day he will repay you with his love. Be courageous and go forward, for if what you did is but a little, what you desired is very much. O Lord, deign to accept my desires, fulfill them in the way that pleases you. A very beautiful assessment of her own suffering and how God brings about his plan in a way um, that ultimately is for our own salvation. The final thing that we see in that passage from Matthew 11, again, and from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What is this idea about the, the violence of the kingdom? What Christ is saying is that the kingdom of God, maybe another um, uh, way of translating this verse would be the kingdom of heaven is erupting forcefully into the world. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The kingdom of heaven is erupting forcefully into the world and is erupting forcefully into human hearts. Christ is like a shock to human hearts. He comes with force to destroy all that we have made as idols and temples within ourselves and in that sense, the kingdom of heaven comes violently. And he says, and the violent take it by force. And the violent take it by force. In the same measure in which Christ erupts forcefully into the world and into your heart, into my heart, he says, with the same forcefulness, with the same violence, we must work for the kingdom, receive the kingdom. Our faith has to, at times, suffer this violence. Our faith has to be force, forcibly, at times, imposed upon ourselves to overcome ourselves for the sake of God and his goodness. We cannot be like, he says, St. John was not, a reed shaken in the wind. St. John was not a reed shaken in the wind. And so, just as Christ made himself a slave for us and took the form of a servant and accepted the death, the shameful death of the cross, he asks of us to, to live a life of the cross in which our faith is not shaken by the ways that we think our lives should unfold and the things that don't make sense to us 
that are happening in us and around us. The, it's, in a sense, the violence of love. Christ's love is violently interrupting your life and my life, and he wants that our love for him also be a violent return of purification and repentance and worship and humility and faith and trust and goodness. These things don't come easy. These things don't come without a cost or a price, but they come at the cost of the cross. And so Christ says to us today, St. John the Baptist is the greatest among women, but you and I who are in the kingdom are even greater if we follow the, the, the example of John who allows the providence of God to unfold. We see his humility, we see his bearing the cross, and we see his great love. And to God be all glory now and ever and to the ages of all ages. Amen.